Well, let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 6. Continuing on in our series of Mark, sometimes we take very small pieces of Scripture because they need to be small pieces of Scripture. Sometimes we can take slightly larger pieces of Scripture because they're designed by Mark to be larger. And this is one of them. We're going to read from chapter 6, the second half of verse 6, through to the end of verse 29. So let's give ourselves to God's Word. You know, each and every week when we gather, I don't know what you think the highlight of the service is. You know, maybe it's before hanging out, maybe it's the worship and being involved with the Lord, and maybe afterwards having coffee. But I want to encourage you that this, this is biblically defined, this is the highlight. When we gather around the Word that isn't man's interpretation of a Word, but is the Word, breathed out by God. Let's read it together, verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house... Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. King Herod heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. 
He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the way it speaks to us. We thank you for the way it pursues us. Lord, did you open our eyes this morning to behold the wonders of your word? Did you open our eyes to see what you are telling us here through Mark? Help us to hear your voice, Lord. Amen. You know, one of my favorite films, and one of my favorite sort of series of films, are the Mission Impossible films. I love them. Bit of an addict, to be honest. And so last year when I went to the States... I noticed that there was a Mission Impossible film on the screen, on the plane. So sweet, I'm going to watch that at least once, maybe twice, on the way. Because I just think it's so cool. And it started in a way that I'd hoped it would have started, with adventure and mission straight from the off. And so if you've seen it, if you've not seen it, I'm going to spoil it for you. But if you've seen it, you got right at the start, Tom Cruise is hanging on to a massive military aeroplane. And the plan is that there's guys on the ground that have got his computer out and are going to open the door. But as this plane takes off, they can't figure out how to open the door. So Tom Cruise is just hanging on for dear life on this plane as this plane is going through the skies. And eventually they figure out how to open the door and he gets in and you know, saves everything inside, so on and so forth. I love it. I love that type of an adventure. I think of it as real. I pretend it's real. I just think it's so fun. It's adventure, it's mission, and in part... I really like the films because they remind me of the original television series. See, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, there was a television series in Britain called Mission Impossible. And to be honest, I think that series was even better. Maybe it's because I was a teenager when I was watching them, but it was just so good. And it was so good because each and every scene, each and every story started exactly the same way. At the start of the television program, somehow the agent, the secret agent, would get a tape recorder. We used to have them in those days. And they'd get a tape recorder, they'd get it given, it would be in an, in an office or a house, or somebody would walk past them in the street and hand them it and then just walk off and, oh, what is this, a tape recorder? And they would play the tape recorder and it would always start the same way. Hello, agent, this is M, and this is your mission should you choose to accept it. And then the tape recorder would start to talk about all the different things that he needed to do, that this agent needed to do to save the world. And at the end of the tape recording, it would always say, and this mission will self-destruct in five seconds. Four, three, two. And then the tape recorder would start fizzing, there would flames come out the tape recorder, it would start smoking, and this thing would just explode. I love that. And just as it exploded, then you'd hear it. Bum, 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 bum. And you're like, oh, it's happening! Every time, I was just taken in by this story. Mission Impossible was filled with action, filled with drama, filled with mission, and the mission usually involved saving the world from oncoming disaster. So I loved it. Every week, I would watch it. And yet, watching that show, I had no idea at all that as a Christian, in all honesty... God was also calling me to that type of incredible mission as well. Now, it's different. I've never hung on to the side of a plane. There's not a lot of action in this mission that I have. There's not a deal of great deal of drama. And it's different in that this mission is different because this is not a mission I have been given should I choose to accept it. 
Upon salvation as a Christian, I've been called to it, as have you. This isn't a mission should we choose to accept it. It's a mission given to us by God, and yet it is just the same in that it is a mission to save the world. It's a mission of absolute significance. It is a mission of serious worth, and it is a mission that has been given to each and every individual in this room that has put their faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew 28, verse 19, we read these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That is a serious Mission Impossible verse right there. Go and make disciples of, oh, who? Oh, the whole world. Go to the world. Tell them about Jesus Christ. Go and brandish the gospel and go about the task of preaching the gospel that has the power to save anyone, no matter what their race. So they put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That wasn't just given to the apostles. That was given to the apostles in a representative way of everybody who would go on to put their faith in Jesus. That's the mission we've all been called to. Jesus says it in the book of John as well, when he says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The Father sent me on this mission, I'm now sending you on this mission. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. You know, when we actually realize as Christians that that mission has been given to us individually, not just these ethereal people that must be out there, that must be superstars doing the business. I think it totally changes our head around this thinking on mission. And a whole list of questions then start to come to our minds. Questions like, okay, well, what then is this mission all about? I'm going to get the headline. We're called to brandish the gospel and take it out to the nations. But how do we do that? And in what power do we do that? And how do we go about that? And also a question like, what should we expect on this mission? Is it going to be easy? Should we just go after it and it's just going to be fine? People are going to be falling at our feet, saying, oh my goodness, we've been waiting for you. We just wanted to put our faith in Jesus. Or is it going to be hard? Is it going to be difficult? Is it going to be simple, which is going to be accepted with open arms, or is it going to be really difficult when we honestly share the gospel with people? What should we expect? Well, the thing that I love about this text that we have before us today is that this text answers those two questions in particular. It answers the questions, what is this mission all about? And it answers the question, what should we expect on this mission? And the way Mark does it is really neat and it's really particular and unusual just to him. And it's something we often know of theologically as the Markan sandwich. Because here's what he does. And the way Mark writes, it's different to all the other gospel writers. And the way Mark writes, what he does, he often takes two units or stories or teachings, maybe even two scenes that are tied together in content that are ultimately the same purpose. And then in the middle of those two units or stories or teachings, he inserts something, often another story, that can appear totally unrelated. And in reality, it is totally related. 
Because that story that is the meat in the sandwich, so to speak, informs the sandwich. The two bookends that surround it, it informs that. It tells us something about that, and that's why he's saying it. And that's what he does here. See, Mark chapter 6, from verse 6 through 13, and then in verse 30, he's talking to us about the mission of the disciples. The mission that he has sent the disciples on. But then in 14 through 29, this middle part, he gives us the tragic story of the beheading of John the Baptist. And if you don't know what Mark's doing, you just read it and think, that's really strange, but thanks for telling us. But in reality, he's telling us it because it informs the mission. It informs the mission of the disciples, which ultimately means it informs your mission and my mission. And that's exactly what he does here. He explains to us what is this mission all about that we've been sent on and what should we expect on this mission. So let's start where he does. Only two points today, and here's the first point. What is this mission all about? What is it that we're called to? I mean, we get the headline, right? We're called to go and make disciples of all nations. We're called to brandish the gospel and take it out to our communities, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our colleges, literally to the end of the earth. But let's drop into that a bit. Let's look at some of the details of that. What does that, what does that mean? Well, Mark wants to take us by the hand this morning and tell us a bit more about what that means. And there's three things, three subpoints that he wants to tell us about. Here's the first, and it's whose mission this really is. Your mission. Is it really your mission? Whose is it? See, there's no doubt that in chapter 6, there is quite a turnaround in this gospel. Prior to this moment, all attention appropriately has been on Jesus. All gaze has been on Jesus, who he is in his power and in his majesty and in his authority. And yet, if we've been paying attention, we will realize he has nonetheless given us an introduction to chapter 6 with giving us some attention towards the disciples, the disciples who represent us. And he does it in chapter 3. Just turn with me there a moment. Turn with me back to chapter 3. Because although all the focus thus far has been on Jesus, in chapter 3 from verses 7 through 19, we have that really neat section where he's talking to about the crowd and the called. Do you remember it? In verses 7 through 12, we see the crowd. They're crushing all around Jesus. They just want to be with Jesus. But they don't want to be with Jesus to follow Jesus. They just want to be with Jesus to get from Jesus what they need. They want to be healed. They want to have a demon cast out. They just want to be entertained. So they're flocking around him, nearly crushing him. They're coming in their thousands to encounter Jesus, but for all the wrong reasons. And then in verse 13 through 19, you see how salvation occurs as he calls the disciples. He takes the time to pull back from the crowds and then he says, I want you and I want you and I want you. Come to me. As we see this stark contrast between the crowd and the call, Jesus divinely calling his disciples. And in verse 13 of 14, he explains why. He gives a purpose for why he is calling disciples to himself. Let's read verse 13 of 14 of chapter 3. It says that he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. 
And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So that they might be with him, and so that he might send them out to preach. The purpose of the divine calling of the disciples is so that they might be with him, and so that he might send them out to preach. So that they might be with him. Jesus had not just come to perform miracles. He had not just come to say, hey, check it out what God can do. I can heal people. I can cast out demons. No, Jesus Christ had come to create community. He had come to call people to himself from every tribe and language and nation. He had come to start a new family. And that's what's happening right here. It's the, it's the local church in seed form starting to happen. And these disciples are coming around him and doing just that. They're joining together as family and they're with Jesus. They're with Jesus all the time. They're following him around all the time. They just want to be with this great king, this great Messiah, this great Savior. And in the early part of the gospel, then that's what you see happening, isn't it? The disciples are with Jesus all the time. And yet he also tells us in chapter 3 that he's also calling them to himself so that he might send them out to preach. Listen, the local church is not just a family. The local church is not just a hospital, though it is both of those things. God in his grace joins us together as family. It is a community, but it is not only that. It is a community on the move. It is a family with a mission. A divine mission given to us by God is not only a family in a hospital, it's an army that God builds together from every tribe and language and nation. And he sends us out. And in Mark chapter 6, if you turn back there, Jesus right now is doing that. He's already told them that's why he's calling them. Now he's making that a reality. Because in chapter 6, he starts to send them out. Look with me then at verse 7. It says, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. That's wild. He's already told them before, that's why I'm calling you. He's saying, this is, this is great, isn't it, community? Isn't this great? Wonderful. Okay, two by two, let's go. He sends them out to preach the gospel. He sends them out to heal people. He sends them out to cast out demons. And notice, he not only sends them out, he gives them, look, pay attention, he gives them his authority. That is profound. Because whilst all the attention has been on Jesus all the way through this gospel, all attention has been on Jesus' authority. That's the word that's been here all the way through. That's the thing that Mark has been seeking to shine the light on all the way through the Gospel of Mark so much, the authority of Jesus Christ. Because it is a profound authority. And so chapter 1, we see Jesus teaching in the synagogue and the unclean spirit. Do you remember that? And we painted the scene of it's just a church service like this. And it's great. He's teaching them. Then all of a sudden, some guy stands up, demon-possessed, starts shouting at Jesus. That would be really awkward. But he casts the demon out, the man returns to his right mind, 
And the crowd leave that day saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority? Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Nothing could stand in the way of Jesus Christ. He teaches with such authority. He even casts out demons with authority. In chapter 2, we see him healing a paralytic. We see that paralyzed guy with his friends coming to his house and digging their way through the ceiling. And then as they lower their friend down on a mat who's paralyzed, Jesus looks at the guy and says, Hey, your son, your sins are forgiven. An odd way to start. You know, the guy's paralyzed. But that's great as well. It's great to have your sins forgiven. And the scribes are freaking out. Only God can forgive sins. Who do you think you are? How dare you forgive people's sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus, in effect, says to them, that's exactly right. Only God can do that. Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And so that you might know then that I am he. You, young man, rise, take up your bed, and go home. It is exactly what he does. And everybody leaves the house once again, shaking their heads, saying, what's going on with this? Who has the authority to do that apart from God alone? And that's his point. I am God alone. Chapter 3, he heals a whole stack of people and casts out a whole stack of evil spirits, proving time and time again, I have the authority to do all these things. I am God. I am the king. The scribes question him about it again. And they say, listen, we figured it out. The only way you're healing people and the only way you're casting out demons is that you must be demon-possessed yourself. <laughs> figured it. And Jesus, in a very polite way, because he's not me, calls him an idiot, but does it better than me. But he's basically saying, you idiots, what, what are you on about? Why, how would that work? So Satan is divided against himself. The kingdom is divided against itself. No, I'll tell you who I am. I heal people and I cast out demons because I have authority to do so. And even now I am going to Satan's house and I am plundering his house because I'm setting the captives free. And I can do that because I have the authority of the king because I am the king. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he shows his authority again and again and again over Satan, over nature, over demons, over sickness, even over death. There is no doubt that for the last five chapters, we have had the authority of Jesus placarded before our eyes. And that's what makes verse 7 so profound. Because it is that authority that he now looks at his disciples and says, listen, I'm sending you out two by two. Oh, and guess what? I'm giving you my authority as you go. <laughs> that is incredible. I'm giving you my power. I'm giving you my strength. I'm giving you my abilities as you go. So that as you go, you don't just represent me, I will be with you in power as you share the gospel and take this mission around the earth. So what's the point? Why is Mark putting it here for us? What does he want us to understand about this mission? Here's what he wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that this really isn't our mission at all. It's his your mission isn't primarily your mission. It's his 
mission. So do we have a part to play? Absolutely. We're called to brandish the gospel and take it out to our communities. But we must understand that at the bottom of it all is Jesus himself. He is the one who sends us. It isn't our idea to go and represent it. He's the one who calls us to himself and then sends us. He's the one who places us, who puts us in specific places at specific times, in specific nations, in specific communities, in specific workplaces and jobs and colleges. And he's the one that then empowers us for this mission with his authority. Everything that happens in your life is not an accident. God himself is weaving it all together to put you in the right place at the right time on his mission, and then he empowers you for this mission with his authority. That kind of changes the perspective on this mission, does it not? It's not ours. It's his. You're his ambassadors, who he's placing, who he's calling, who he's empowering every step of the way. It's not our mission. It's his. It wasn't our idea. It certainly wasn't the sovereign grace idea. It's God's idea. It's the king's idea. But that's not all Mark wants to show us. He wants to show us as well, number two, where our reliance for this mission really needs to be. Where our reliance, where our hope for this mission can be. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. It says, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What's that all about? You know, you just think, is that it? Is that like a code for mission from here on in? Okay, no more two tunics. I never take a bag when I'm trying to reach out. No bread. Oh, I like bread. You know, what's it about? Is it just an instruction book? For us as we go on mission? Well, not at all. They are an unusual instructions about practical matters, and they do deal with material provisions. What to do, what not to do, what to take, what not to take. And yet, just to be clear, these instructions are not permanent instructions for all missionary endeavors afterwards, okay? It's not the way it is. I know it for a fact because in Luke 22, Jesus himself is talking to his disciples again. And gives them a different list of things to take. So he's not doing a permanent list for them to take for all time. There's specific instructions to this 12 on this specific missional endeavor. And yet, we do learn something. And we do learn something from every time Jesus gives instructions to his disciples about what to take and what not to take. And what we learn, I think, is this. That in missions... Our reliance needs to be on God and not ourselves. Because that's always Jesus' point on mission. That your reliance as you go and brandish the gospel and take it out must not be on yourself. It needs to be on me. It needs to be on my provision. My help of you. And you know, I'd have to say, as I studied that this week, I was really affected by that. Because I got to thinking for myself and maybe for us too that just like it is for the disciples it can be really easy to get distracted with our stuff, can't it? 
The very thing Jesus is wanting his disciples to avoid. And yet it's so easy to get distracted with stuff. And maybe that's become so fresh to me because of my recent trip to the Philippines. Because I thought saw things there that, that took my breath away. And as I said to you a few weeks ago, one time when we're driving between the hotel and where the conference is, um, we go past a lady and she's on the side of the street. She's trying to settle these two kids down. And they must have been like six months and maybe two. And they're on top of a cardboard box on the path. And then she had a tricycle beside her and it sort of filled up with all this stuff, probably about this high off the ground, with two little seats where I suppose she must put her kids when they go out in the days. And you realise, that's a house. And then you drive on a bit further and we went past these, you know, you know like in sewers and they have these huge circular things that go under the ground. Well, they were just stacked up, but in every one of them were children. And they had their feet poking out the end. Their feet were black. And you realise, that's where they live. That's their house. That's where they sleep. That's where they spend their day. There was more than one occasion when little children, as we're driving along and you pull up in traffic, there's one time, two children, about Liam and Savannah's age, I would think, five and four, knocking on the window, just seeing if we had any money. And they could barely see over the window. And they're just walking around. So I see that, and then I come home, and as I'm getting over jet lag, I turn over the TV, and there's a home renovations program on. Came from the United States, and it was this couple that buy houses, and then do up houses and sell them, or do up houses just for themselves. And this was a particular couple that were both architects, and they go into this house, and it was beautiful as it was. It was great. Now, I've just been from the Philippines, okay? So you're coming in. This house is just like a beautiful house. That is so beautiful. And they look around this house, and they go, oh, yep, we'd have to rip out the whole thing. Kitchen, yeah, don't like the colour. Don't like the colour. So they start getting a sledgehammer and they start smashing this kitchen to pieces and they go into the lounge and, yeah, I just don't like the feel of the wall. So we'll just change that. We're going to put some stuff at the top. And there was a bit of furniture left in the house and they're like, oh, this is just horrible stuff. It's just not our colour. It just, oh, it just doesn't feel nice. And man, I'm challenged. Because I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. Children sleeping on a path to home renovations where we're ripping a kitchen out because we don't like the colour. And I wasn't just challenged as I'm watching their story. I'm challenged as I'm thinking about my own. How quickly I can go from seeing children sleeping on the side of the street to walking around Bunnings going, I so need this stuff. I so need this stuff. Look at this garden furniture. Oh, my love, come and sit. Oh, isn't this? Oh, this is so lovely. We need this. We need this for hospitality reasons. The color is just so wrong outside. And you think, what is going on? Here's what's going on. My heart, maybe like yours, gets very easily distracted from the mission with stuff. We've been called on the greatest rescue mission ever told. We've been called on something that far outweighs Mission Impossible. We've been called to brandish the gospel and take it out, to literally play a part in seeing their eternal salvation come around. 
And yet one of our greatest dangers in the first world is we have a habit and a tendency to get distracted with stuff. We're either buying the stuff, or we're choosing the stuff, or we have no time for mission to upkeep the stuff. So we get our house beautifully landscaped, but then we have to spend four hours a week ensuring that it stays landscaped. And so we just go from place to place to place, and we think, oh, mission, that would be so good, but I just don't have the time. Okay, honey, coming, what sofa should we choose next? Can you imagine the early disciples carrying all the stuff with them that we have today around? Oh, Jesus, that's awesome. I just love the idea. Okay, guys, bring in the lorries. Let's go. Listen, if you're like me, because I'm pointing the finger mainly at me in this. If you're like me, then you too can get incredibly distracted by stuff. That is exactly why Jesus says here, in effect to his disciples, guys, travel light. Don't worry about the bag. Don't worry about your sandals. Don't even put on two tunics. Why? Because I don't want you getting distracted with stuff. Because you're on an incredible mission. I don't want you getting distracted with stuff, boys. So let's go. And I want you, as you go, to depend on me. See, I think another thing that's possible in the first world is we start to live and look after ourselves. And we say we're trusting in God, but actually we're looking after ourselves in the hope that even if God dies, I've got this. I'll be fine. Oh, I trust in the Lord. I do. As soon as I get my three houses. But I trust in the Lord. Really? Or is that trust in yourself? Because if God dies, you've still got it. The word of Jesus is provoking and challenging, isn't it? Because his whole premise is, guys, if we're going to go on mission, we need to travel light. We must not get distracted by stuff. Our reliance for this mission needs to be on him. And he also then tells us, number three, how we need to understand rejection. I think this is pretty cool too. Look at verse 10. It says, And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house... Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. That's pretty wild. So is that what we do? We go over our friend's house. Yep, told them the gospel. They didn't respond. That's it. The shoe's coming off on the doorstep. You know, what, what does that mean? That's what he wanted the disciples to do. He's saying, listen, as you go into that city, as you go into that town, tell them the gospel represent me. Tell them all about me. But if they don't respond, then as you come out the town, shake off the sandals, shake off the dust. Why? Well, as a testimony, as a prophetic sign that symbolizes that those people are separate from God. And as a sign that warns them of the future that is to come for them if they don't choose to repent. That they will be separated from God for all eternity. So shake off the dust from your sandals. And the truth is, for these disciples, it would have been a sign to them of what's going on in the city. But when you think about it, it would have been more than that. It also would have been a reminder that they don't represent themselves on this mission. They represent Jesus. And that this isn't really their mission. This is Christ's. Because as Matthew 10 verse 40 says, whoever receives you, receives me. 
And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And so these disciples realize that as they share the gospel, as they preach the gospel with people, if they receive it, then they're receiving Christ. But if they reject it, they're not actually rejecting them. Something far bigger going on. They're rejecting Christ. So why is this here for us today? What's it got to do with us as we go about this mission? Well, everything. Because what Mark is trying to help us see is that if we get rejected for Christ... It's not us that is being rejected. It's him. It's Jesus. What an encouragement that would have been to the disciples. But the truth is, if we allow that to sink in, it should be a great encouragement to us as well. Listen, do you view your evangelistic efforts that way? Do you think of it that way? When you're trying to live for Christ and somebody says, that is ridiculous, and starts to ridicule for it, do you take it all personally? I think this text is trying to help us see you don't need to take that personally. Because ultimately they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Christ. And you just represent him. So each and every time they reject you, ultimately they're rejecting him. And I think if we see that and are helped by that, it has a profound loosening effect on the grip of self-consciousness and the fear of man in our lives, it can be very freeing and emboldening as you realize as I go out to my family member, as I try and preach to my friend, and they just think I'm stupid, I can hide myself in thee. Because ultimately they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting him. And so in that I find a union with Christ. Because he's my king. And he's my brother. It changes what's going on, doesn't it? So what is this mission all about? Well, big picture, Matthew 28. To go and make disciples of all nations, to tell people about Jesus, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet as Mark drops into into this, he helps us, doesn't he? Helps us to understand that this mission really isn't ours at all. It's his. Jesus sends. Jesus places. Jesus empowers. And we need, as Christians, to depend on him and not ourselves to carry out this mission. We need to guard against getting distracted by stuff and instead get distracted and fixated on the race ahead and what we're called to as Christians. And if we get rejected in it, then so be it. Because ultimately they're rejecting him and not us. So I wouldn't recommend shaking your sandals off at any point. But nonetheless, in your mind you can. As you're aware, they're not rejecting me. They're rejecting him. Well, what then should we expect on this mission, which is the second part of this message, a shorter part? What should we expect? Because Mark wants us to realize that as well. And there's two things that we should expect on this mission. Two important things. Is the first. We should expect that, number one, the mission in God's power will inevitably go forward. That's what we should expect. That this mission that you and I have been called to in God's power will inevitably go forward. I mean, check this out, verse 12 and 13. I love it. It says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. 
Sweet! We've never seen this before. This hasn't happened before. It's just Jesus to prior to now. Jesus is representing himself. Jesus is casting out demons. Jesus is healing people. He now gives them the authority to do it. They go out two by two, no doubt with their knees knocking. And as they're sharing Christ, people are getting saved. As they're praying over people that demons be rebuked, the demons are fleeing. And as they're praying over the sick, people are getting healed. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? Wouldn't you have loved to have been on that beach mission trip and actually see guys going out and realize people are getting saved here? Did you see? That guy's leg grew. That guy was blind when he rocked up. Who was it? Yeah, Matthew. I can't believe it either, but it was him. He prayed with people and they got saved. He prayed with people and they got healed. Did you see that demon? The way that guy was just saying weird, creepy stuff. And then Andrew goes up to him, points at him and says, come out in the name of Jesus and that thing goes. Man, that was a day. That was quite a day. These guys are going out. These men who were really 19, 20, 21 years old take Jesus at his word. They be given the authority of Jesus. They start to proclaim Jesus and great things happen. And it's clear that the name of Jesus has really started to spread. Because even King Herod has now heard of Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. See, we've all heard of King Herod the Great, right? He's in Matthew chapter 2. He's the guy that wants to kill baby Jesus. He's the king of the time that believes in these Old Testament prophecies, these prophecies of old of how a king's going to be born, words getting to him, and so he wants to see Jesus killed as a baby. Well, this isn't him. This is his son, King Herod Antipas. King Herod the Great has died. His son has now taken over King Herod Antipas, and King Herod Antipas, who is named here, is now hearing about Jesus too. As the disciples are proclaiming Christ, it's come all the way to the king. And as the king hears about Jesus, this is his response in fear and distress and guilt. Oh my goodness, I know who it is. It's John the Baptist, who I beheaded, has been raised. He's afraid. He feels guilty. He's in disbelief. See, Herod Antipas had sought to do all he could to silence John the Baptist. He had sought to silence the very voice of God, and yet now, in fear and disbelief, he realizes that he didn't do it. Despite all his power, all his cunning, all his brutality. He hadn't been able to silence John the Baptist. He hadn't been able to silence the move of God. He hadn't been able to stop this value of the gospel going forward. And he's the king. And what's going to happen now? No matter all that John had done, he hadn't been able to silence God's voice going forward. And that, my friends, is exactly what Mark is telling us here. Because he wants us to know that nothing and no one can nor ever will thwart the purposes of God. When Aslan goes on the move, when his mission goes forward, 
when his kingdom starts to expand, when the roar of Aslan starts to shout its voice above the nations, no king can stand in his way. They tremble at his voice. And Mark wants us to realize then that this mission in the power of God will inevitably go forward. We see it in the book of Acts. Jesus himself says, listen, I'm going I'm to send the, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come on you with power. And you're going to go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And all the way through Acts, you see two things happening all the time. You see the word of God opposed with difficulty and anguish. And then every single time, if you pay attention to the text, it says, and the word of God went forward. Opposed, persecuted, and the word of God went forward. Opposed, killed, and the word of God went forward. Opposed, removed from the city, and the word of God went forward. What Mark is telling us here is that that story did not start in the book of Acts. That story started in Mark chapter 6. Because King Herod sought to silence the move of God by arresting John the Baptist. And yet the word of God went forward. Everybody started to hear about Jesus. His fame began to spread. This mission in God's power will inevitably go forward. But then... We come to the meat in the mark and sandwich. And here's what we learn from the meat in the mark and sandwich. What we learn is that this mission, though it will inevitably go forward, will often do so in the midst of great hostility. This mission that we've been given by the Lord, it will go forward. The roar of Aslan cannot be stopped. But for you and I, that roar will often go forward in the midst of genuine hostility. See, in verse 16, we are introduced to the story of Herod's execution of John. And it can seem so random as if it's not going to do with anything. But Mark wants to help us see, no, this is important. This is a story that informs our mission. And so he says this in verse 17. It says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. <laughs> this is a really seedy, strange story. But it's important. And it's important to the story. The background to this story is the unholy marriage that Herod finds himself in. It's not clear whether he's killed his brother or whether he's just taken his brother's wife. But neither, whatever how he's come to it, Herod has married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. And so John, being John, steps up to the king, he's no fear of man, steps up to the king and looks at the king in his eyes and says, what you're doing is wrong. It is against the Bible. It is against God's holy law. It is wrong what you are doing. So Herod listens. He doesn't like it. But Herodias, Herod's wife, completely kicks off at this. How dare he say that? Who is he to come in here and speak to you that way? Who is he to come in here and tell us that this is totally inappropriate? And so Herod arrests John and seeks to silence John by putting him in prison. Herodias wants him killed. But Herod has some degree of respect for John. He seems to be this holy guy. So I'm just going to arrest him and put him in prison and throw away the key. 
From verse 20 to 29, to start off with, that's the way it is. He's in prison. John the Baptist is in prison at the pleasure of King Herod himself. And that's fine until Herod's birthday party comes. He has this great big party, a huge banquet, invites all the nobles of the land, all the leaders of the land, all the military commanders of the land. And so Herodias, Herod's wife, decides, hey, I've got an idea. I'm going to get our daughter to dance for everybody. You know, the way this is written, this, probably, this girl probably isn't 20, 21, 22 years old. It is a seedy young girl dance. It's gross what's happening. But Herodias is saying, listen, I'm going to send this girl out to dance. and You can look at her, and if it pleases you, hey, maybe we'll get something out of it. So Herodias' daughter starts to dance for all the noblemen and the leaders, and Herod loves it. He's clearly had a few to drink by now. He thinks this is great. And so he laughs and jeers, and at the end says, listen, I'll give you anything. Whatever you want, up to half of my kingdom, you name it and you can have it. That dance was so beautiful. She talks to her mum and she says, yeah, I've got something. I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The blood drains from King Herod's face. He doesn't want to do that. But he's embarrassed in front of the leaders. He's given his oath that he would. So he sends an executioner to the prison cells. The executioner kills John the Baptist and his head is brought up in a platter and given to Herodias, Herod's new wife. Well, why is this story here? Why has Mark put it here? My friends, Mark has put it here to help us see that in all reality, this mission that we've been called to takes place in a hostile world. The mission that we've been called to as Christians happens in a world that will oppose us. This mission that we've been called to as Christians, it will inevitably go forward. But we go into a world which is hostile. We should not expect for everybody just to go, oh, how wonderful, thanks for sharing it with me. We should expect hostility in the grimmest form. You were never a threat to Satan when you weren't a Christian. You just blended in with everybody else. But now you are a shining light, an ambassador of Jesus Christ, and we should expect then hostility to the mission of Jesus Christ. Because people don't like it. No one wants to bow the knee to a king. This mission will inevitably go forward, but it will so often do so in the midst of genuine hostility. Listen, our mission is glorious, but it is not romantic. Our mission is unstoppable, but it is not a fun run in the park. We're not going to be skipping along, holding hands as a church all the time. It's going to be times when it is brutally difficult to stand for Jesus Christ, and the world will oppose us, and the world will oppose you. And so after showing us this mission in God's power, and how it will go inevitably forward, Mark also shows us, through this incredible and tragic story of the beheading of John, that this mission will often go forward in the midst of hostility. And to be honest, what an honest and helpful and empowering reminder this is, isn't it? See, sometimes I think we can be surprised when we're opposed because we want to be liked and we want our message to be liked. Sometimes even as a church we can be tempted 
to have the suggestion, hey, I've got this thinking, you know, we should get better lights, we'll get a smoke machine, let's do all this crazy stuff because people might like it. They might think it's cool to be a Christian. No one will ever think it's cool to follow Christ, okay? Ever. Our message will always be opposed because it goes to a hostile world. We're not trying to be cool, we're trying to be faithful to the Scriptures. And understanding that we've been empowered by Christ, we're seeking to take the gospel out. If we're opposed, we shouldn't be surprised. Because that's what Mark is telling us about here. This mission is not going to be easy. But you know what, church? It's no mission impossible either. It's not our mission. It's his mission. He's called you. He started the process. He's placed you and he will empower you. For his authority has now been given to you. He will help you. He will take those bumbling efforts that come out of my mouth and come out of your mouth as you try and communicate with people and he will make them a sweet sound to somebody's ear and their life will be transformed and changed in the gospel. Because that's the power of Jesus. That's his authority. That's his sovereignty coming through your mouth. And so I want to encourage you. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this mission is all about you because you're the recipients of it. Jesus came on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He made you. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He made you to be with God the Father and find your identity and your joy and your peace in Him. But you, like me, rejected Him. And because of that, we're cut off from God. And you can't get back. There's no way back. The gap is too big. It doesn't how much, how much charity you do, how loud you sing, how much you pray, how nice you are to people. It's not enough. But God in his grace sent his one and only son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He died at the cross at Easter. And he said all along, if you put your faith in me as Lord and Savior, then you will be saved. I've come to bridge the gap between you and God. Walk through me. Put your faith in me. And you will go from death to life. This mission is for you. And so even before you go home today, put your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you will be saved. He is your only answer. He is the only way. But my friends, if you're here today as a Christian, then I want to encourage you, play your part in the mission. Play it. Own it. As you run out onto the field, don't just stand off in a corner, but own it. God has called you, not just to be with him, but he's called you to go and make disciples of all nations. He's called you. He's sent you. So in his name, let's go. Amen. Our friends, we're not going to sing to close, but I do want us to stand together. And then I'm just going to pray for us all as a church. Lord, this mission that you have sent us on is profoundly sobering because it's not a walk in the park. And Lord, would you forgive us for thinking that it should be? Lord, this mission isn't possible when we get distracted with stuff. Oh Lord, would you forgive us for that? 
And Lord, would you help us to guard our hearts from pursuing riches and getting distracted with riches when in reality it's all about the race that you've put us on. Lord, did you help us then to brandish faith? Lord, as you breathe this scripture and inform our mission, you help us see this isn't mission impossible. It is mission possible. And so, yes, we will face hostility. But Lord, having given us the mission, would you empower us even now for the mission? And would we go? Lord, would we not stand off at the side, either distracted or quaking in unbelief? But would we recognize afresh this morning, we've been called and we've been sent and we have been positioned to be right here, right now for this race. And so, Lord, would we go? Would we be your ambassadors? And would grace abound to us all? In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Let's go live it. Amen. All right.